Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. To Luke chapter 9, and you'll find your place there in verse 18. In Luke 9, verse 18 through 27 will be our text this morning. This is God's Word. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Our Father in heaven, now we come to your word. We, we pray, O oh Lord, that you indeed, as we sang, would be our wisdom, would be our word, that you who are wisdom, who stores up wisdom for the upright, would grant to us wisdom and understanding as we come to your word, so that we might see Christ truly, so that we might embrace Jesus rightly, seeing that this one, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you sent, O Lord, is indeed the Christ, your Christ, the very Son of God. And seeing him rightly, O Lord, we pray that you would enable us to embrace what he embraces, embrace the life that leads to a cross, to a grave, to resurrection, to exaltation. Seeing that that was his life, and believing that that was his life, and that he went that way for us. May we also, O Lord, be a people who embrace his example, who take up our crosses daily. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the Christ. He had to suffer, to die, and to rise. This is a confession that stands at the foundation of the Christian faith. It was the first Christian confession, you might say. It's the very message that the apostles preached throughout the book of Acts when they went from one synagogue to another, from one city to another city. They proclaimed and sought to persuade their hearers that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ because he suffered and died and rose. It's also the answer then to this foundational question, the most important question any of us will ever be asked. Who do I say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Now our culture would give us many answers. A wise man, a teacher, 
even a prophet, perhaps. Some would say just an ordinary man. But alone these answers will not do. They all capture something of who he is, of what he did. But alone they are all insufficient because they are not based on the full witness, the full testimony of Scripture or the testimony of Jesus himself, the testimony of his apostles as well. You see, if we are to be his disciples, we must see and confess that Jesus is the Christ. We must see him as he is, and we must follow him where he goes. And this requires us to understand and to believe what it means to say he is the Christ of God and to understand and embrace his cross and resurrection as necessary for our salvation and the pattern for a life of discipleship. This morning as we come to the text, I want to give you a method, a method by which we're going to reason through this presentation and reason through this question so that we might answer it for ourselves, not simply hearing Peter's words and hearing his confession and the confession of the disciples, but so that that confession might be our own. That method relies on four principles which we will draw from the text. We begin with prayer and repentance as our first two principles. And we proceed to a coherent synthesis of the whole witness of Scripture, of the whole biblical testimony. And we do this all with the fourth principle, trusting in the tutelage, trusting in the teaching of our Lord Himself. The first principle then is that we begin with prayer. And we see it right there in our text. Now it happened that as He was praying alone, the disciples were with Him. One of the things about Luke's gospel that we can note is that Luke regularly draws attention to the prayer life of Jesus. He shows us that Jesus regularly withdrew to prayer, to pray alone. And it was a way, it's a way in which Luke signals in the course of his narrative of the gospel that something important is going to happen. You see, the very moment before Jesus commissioned the twelve as apostles, we found him praying. We found him praying Earlier in this gospel as well, we see it again and again. At key moments, at key turning points in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is alone praying. And yet, it's not simply a literary signal. It's not simply a literary device by which, Jesus, by which Luke shows us that something important is about to take place. It also is an example that Luke commends to us. And as he commends it to us, we naturally wonder, what is it that Jesus is praying? As he prays before Peter's great confession, what is it that he's saying? The text doesn't tell us, but we can make a good guess. We can make a reasoned guess by considering what it is that he said after this event. And for that, we consider the testimony of Matthew about the same event in Matthew chapter 16. There in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew's record of this same event, beginning in verse 13, we read these words, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then note this in verse 17, how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
How did Peter come to this great conclusion? How did he come to this weighty confession? Was it because he was so smart? Because he studied so hard? Because he had so much wisdom in and of himself? No. He was blessed by God because God revealed this to him. And Luke will show us this as well as we continue to study in his gospel. We'll see later in Luke chapter 11. That Jesus, excuse me, in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, that Jesus will thank God for answering prayers like this one. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. There we find Jesus thanking God the Father that he had revealed the truth to those whom he chose. And if we look down a little bit to verse 23, then again he turns to the disciples. He said privately words very similar to what we heard in Matthew 16. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples had a great privilege. Peter had a great privilege. They were able to walk with Christ and to see his ministry, but they had an even greater privilege that God, the living God, opened their eyes so that they might see with the eyes of faith, so that opened their ears so that they might hear with the ears of faith. And so seeing they might believe and hearing they might receive that which they saw. It was great and blessed revelation of God to Peter and to the disciples. And if we're to come to this confession, it's going to likewise be a gracious revelation of our Heavenly Father. And that's why our first principle is this, that we pray. Just as Jesus before this Himself was praying, we pray. It's what we do every single week when we gather, when we come to God's Word. We always ask Him before we come and after we read that He would open our eyes, that He would give us wisdom and understanding so that we might receive and understand these things that He teaches us because we know it's a gracious revelation of our Heavenly Father. We know that He hears our prayers. and We know that He asks us when we pray according to His will. And I would commend that to you. You can do this right now. You, in the quiet of your heart, can pray right now asking God the Lord of heaven and earth, God, open my mind. Soften my heart. Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear so that these words on this page will not merely be words on a page, but will be the truth. Will be God's word to us. Will sink down deep in our heart and take root and be fruitful. So I encourage you, pray for yourself. Pray for others, even now, that God would grant us faith. For those who are believers, still pray that God would strengthen our faith with a firmer foundation. The second principle, which we draw from this text, is that it's a necessary initial condition that we come to our Lord with a heart that is repentant. It's not an accident that John the Baptist came before the Christ, preaching a message of repentance, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not an accident. It accords with what God has shown again and again 
in His Word concerning His will for us that we should come to Him with hearts that are repentant. As He spoke through Isaiah in Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That word, contrite, contrition, which we sang of in our hymns this morning, that's a word for repentance. It's the necessary initial condition. The one who humbles himself before God in repentance. That is, he changes his mind. His mind is turned, and so his heart and his will is turned, so that he submits to God's will and God's word and admits and acknowledges that he has failed to live a life that accords with God's word. And so resolves that from henceforward, he will now pursue a life that is consistent with God's word. That is repentance. And it's the character of the Christian life, the constant character of our life. We fail and we fail because we are still in this fallen flesh. We are sinners before a holy God. And the one who dwells on high, the one who is high and lifted up, who is holy, who inhabits eternity, he also dwells with the one who humbles himself before Him, before God, in repentance. We've seen that all the way through Luke's Gospel. We see it even hinted at here in the failure of the crowds to understand who Jesus is. This word crowds, it's a semi-technical term. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 3 and let me show you something of the way Luke uses this term in his Gospel. In Luke chapter 3, verse 7, here we return back to the ministry of John the Baptist and to his proclamation. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here, as John confronts the crowds, he challenges them. And what we begin to see in the picture of the crowds in Luke's Gospel, as we follow through Luke's Gospel, is that this is a mixed group. It's a people who have not sufficiently received God's Word, who have not sufficiently responded to God's proclamation through John, and later we'll see through Jesus. But here we start to see that there is a kind of winnowing, a kind of uh, uh, change that comes over the crowds. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And as John gives them instructions, how to demonstrate repentance in their lives, we see in verse 15 a switch in the way Luke speaks of them. As the people, no longer the crowds, but now he's going to refer to them as the people, were in expectation. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This is a people who received the baptism that John gave, signifying that they embraced his message and they received further revelation. And we see the same pattern obtained in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus will first address the crowds and He will challenge them concerning their estimation of John. And you can see that there in verse 24 of Luke chapter 7. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. 
And he asks them what they went out to the wilderness to see. And yet, after he declares that John fulfills Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah, in Luke chapter 7, verse 29, we have that Lucan shift in terminology. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And we see that division take place between the people and the Pharisees and tax collectors who rejected the preaching of John, rejected the proclamation of repentance. It's the people who begin to think, what is God's doing? It's the crowds who are simply interested as if it's just a human interest story. But when that preaching of repentance comes, many in the crowd say, no thanks. That one's not for us. But the people, especially people like tax collectors and soldiers who become archetypes of repentance, they received that message. And what did they receive after it? They received further revelation from God. God came and dwelt among them. He made His dwelling place with them through Christ. It's a pattern that we can see all the way through Scripture. Repent precedes revelation. And so just as I gave you that first principle that we pray as we contemplate this revelation, I encourage you now in the quiet of your heart, repent. If you don't know how to do that, if you're struggling to do that, know this is also a work of God in your heart. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us concerning sin and righteousness, Jesus would say. And so we need the Spirit of God to convict us concerning sin and righteousness. So pray, Lord God, convict me concerning sin and righteousness. Soften my heart. Make me a person who repents, who recognizes that I'm a sinner, unworthy for you to dwell with me, unworthy to come into your presence and fall before him and trust in the quiet of your heart. And he delights to make his dwelling place with those who humble themselves in this way, that he will reveal himself to you through Christ if you humble yourself with repentance. It's a necessary initial condition. It's one that was not met by the crowds. And so we're not surprised when we come to this after Jesus asks, what's the word on the street? Who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples know full well. Some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. And others the one say that one of the prophets of old has arisen. You see, what we see in the crowds is something like popular imagination. Their, their convictions, their opinion concerning Christ is only loosely connected to what we find in Scripture. It's true that Scripture spoke of a coming Elijah, an Elijah-like figure who would one day come and prefigure the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's judgment. You see that in Malachi chapter 4. God, through the prophet Malachi, in Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, said this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." And so the scribes taught and the people knew that they were to anticipate the return of Elijah. And if you know your biblical storyline, if you know the biblical history, you know that Elijah was one of two men in the Old Testament who did not die. 
You remember how God took him to heaven in a chariot of fire. There in the book of 2 Kings, as he passed the baton in his ministry to Elisha, the prophet who came after him. And so the people looked for Elijah who was to come. Now in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will tell us explicitly, John the Baptist, he is the Elijah who is to come. Not that he is actually Elijah in that literal sense, but he is the one whom God was speaking of through the promise, through the prophets, when he spoke of Elijah who was to come. And the gospel writers show us this very thing. For example, in Mark chapter 1, in the way that Mark describes John, he describes John as one, in Mark 1 verse 6, who was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And apart from this interesting description, we wonder, why on earth is he telling us this? But if we were to turn back to 2 Kings chapter 1, we would find a narrative where one of the kings of Israel, Ahaziah, sent a delegation to Philistia to inquire of an idol, of a false prophet, for guidance. And Elijah met them. And he confronted that delegation and sent them back to the king. And in 2 Kings chapter 1, 7 and 8, we read, He said to them, What kind of man, this is the king speaking to the delegation, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. He knew him immediately by the way that he dressed. And the people of Israel should have been expected to know that John was the fulfillment of these things. That he was Elijah who is to come by the way that he dressed. That's how Mark shows us. That's the way they're to understand his ministry as fulfilling what Malachi prophesied. Luke shows it to us in another way. And here I simply remind you of those words from Malachi chapter 4. Let me read them again to you. This specific line about the coming Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers. And you remember all the way back from Luke chapter 1. How when Gabriel, the angel, came to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and told him he would bear a son. What did he say about him? In Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the angel said, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And here's that line, that phrase from Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. From words like that, from the way that Mark described John's dress, the way that he appeared to the people of Israel, they should have recognized him. And if they failed to recognize them, Jesus in his own teaching made it quite clear. He is the messenger that was foretold by Isaiah and foretold by Malachi. He is the prophet who is to come, who prefigures the coming of the Lord to his people. But the people only grasped on a little bit of the scripture. And then they let their imaginations run wild. Regularly, I receive in the mail magazines that one scholar likes to refer to as newspaper eschatology. He calls it newspaper eschatology because these magazines will reflect on current events in some part of the world and then speculate how these events might figure into God's prophetic predictions for the future. I found one this very morning on a website 
Some people discovered some gems in Israel, and they think somehow this is a fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 54, where God said that he will build up Jerusalem's foundations with particular gems that they've now discovered in that place. I just simply say, that's not how prophecy works. God was not predicting that some future person might do some digging someday and find some gems in the ground in a particular place. He was talking about establishing his kingdom forever with foundations of precious stones to speak of its preciousness and the fact that it would last forever. But what happens so often is we pick up a few words, a few phrases from the biblical witness and our imaginations then seize upon them and they run wild. We imagine all sorts of things must come and must happen that aren't actually spoken of. That's what the crowds were doing. That's why they thought he was Elijah. Of course, the scriptures spoke of Elijah to come. But then they started to say that he's John or another prophet who's risen from the dead. There's no biblical precedent for that idea that John or some other prophet would rise from the dead prior to uh, as some kind of sign of coming Uh, of the coming of Christ. There is a biblical precedent that the Christ will rise from the dead as we see, but there's no biblical precedent for what they were saying. And so the third principle is that as we think of Christ, as we evaluate him, as we answer this question, who do you say that I am? We must do it by considering and synthesizing, drawing together and summarizing what the Bible actually says with clarity and with specificity. It's what I want to do this morning for you. You see, the early apostles, the men like Paul and Peter and other disciples like Apollos, they made it their aim to go about through the Roman world proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ and seeking to persuade people of it. And I wish to do my very best to persuade you of that truth as well this morning, to show you, and I know many of you already believe it, but to show you how indeed the scriptures foretold that Jesus would come, that the Christ would come, and how Jesus is the one who actually fulfills the office of the Christ. You see, to say that Jesus is the Christ is not to say that his last name is Christ. It's a title. It translates the word Messiah, which in English means anointed one. To say he's the Christ of God means that he is the one who is anointed by God. And in the Old Testament, there were three kinds of anointed people, prophets and priests and kings. And in the Old Testament, through the prophets, God foretold that there would be a coming prophet. He foretold that there would be a coming priest. He foretold that there would be a coming king. One who would reign forever. And who would unite these offices in himself as the one who is the king and the priest and the final prophet. And that one is the Christ. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. The Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth And he shall speak to them all that I command them. The people asked Moses, be our mediator. God said, it's a good request. But Moses, you're not it. 
I will raise up a prophet like you. He will speak for God to God's people and he will speak to God for God's people. That's what makes him the prophet. He mediates between God and man through the word of God. But we also see the prediction of a coming priest. In 1 Samuel 2.35, when God was casting off the wicked priest, Eli, and his house, he said to him through a prophet, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And here there's a translation difficulty. This is probably best rendered. He shall go in and out as my anointed forever. That this priest should be the anointed, that is, the Christ, the Messiah. And later in 2 Samuel, God sent another prophet who, through whom he spoke to David. When he made a strong and binding promise, a covenant with him, in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 17, the Lord declared to David, I will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And here he speaks of Solomon, David's son, but then he turns his attention to a future son of David, in verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan the prophet spoke to David that there would be a coming son of David who would reign forever as king. And as the biblical witness unfolds, we begin to see that this is no ordinary king. Psalm 2 shows us that he will one day stand in judgment over all the kings of the earth. Every ruler who has ever lived and every ruler who has ever reigned, ever reigned every nation and every people, he will stand as their judge. Psalm 110 shows us that this king will unite in himself the office of king and priest when the Lord says to him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah 11, he shows us that the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might. And that he will reign forever in justice and righteousness and equity. The prophet Zechariah also shows us that in himself, he will unite the office of priest and king. That he will be a priest who reigns on the throne. And he will be a king who serves as a priest. And Luke has shown us, as he has detailed the events of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, that he is indeed the prophet of whom Moses spoke, the prophet who is to come. And that's what the apostles proclaimed. In Acts chapter 3, we've seen, we find Peter going into the synagogue and proclaiming, this is the one who Moses spoke about. And as Peter comes to confess him as the Christ, he recognizes that he is not just the prophet, he is not just the priest, he is not just the king. He is the Christ of God, the one who is the prophet, the priest, and the king of whom the prophets spoke. And it's right, and it's good, 
It's our foundational confession. He is the one who will reign forever and ever, who will judge the living and the dead. What qualifies him then for this office, for these offices? What enables him to serve in these offices in a way that someone like David or Moses could never do? Why was it that Moses could not stand in the gap and be the mediator? Why was it that the priests of the old covenant failed and had to be cast aside? Why was it that David could not build a house, a temple for the Lord, but the Lord promised that he would build for him a house? It's because there's something unique about Christ. When we confess that he is the Christ of God, or to use that language from Matthew, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we recognize that he does not only unite in himself three offices, but he unites in himself divine nature and a human nature. He is the only one who is fully God and fully man. And this qualifies him to serve as the final and only mediator, the one who can speak God's word to us and the one who can speak for us as a man to God. He is the one who can stand in the gap for us as our priest, who can bring us into fellowship with God because he is fully God and he is fully man. He is the one who can reign as God's representative over God's creation, over all humanity. Because he is fully God and he is fully man. He is the one of whom Daniel spoke when he saw in a vision in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one, that shall not be destroyed. He is the one of whom the prophets spoke, the Christ of God. Because of God's gracious revelation to Peter, and I pray his gracious revelation to us, we ought to see him in the same way as the one who is God's Christ, the one who is the son of David and the son of God. But as we reflect on these things, there's a fourth principle. We must receive this proclamation under the tutelage of Christ. We must receive it by way of his instruction. That is, we must understand its meaning as he would have us understand it. If we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we ought to trust him. Now think for a moment of what the disciples must have been thinking as they said, you are the Christ of God. One thing I can tell you they were not thinking. They were not thinking this means that you must go to a cross and die. They were not thinking this means you must suffer. They were thinking king and kingdom. They were thinking glory. And they were thinking we're in the inner circle. Which of us is going to be the greatest? We'll see that. Later in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel. That's what they were thinking. And so when he said in verse 21. Strictly charging them and commanding them. Tell this to no one. And then said the son of man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed and on the third day be raised. They naturally thought what on earth was he talking about. 
You can simply scan down to verse 43 to 45, where Jesus again predicts his death. And in verse 45, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They couldn't understand how the one who is the Christ could possibly go to the cross. In the same way, as the disciples struggled, the early Roman people who heard this message, many of them struggled to receive this testimony as well. Not because they believed in the Christ, they didn't even know what a Christ was. But because, as they heard early Christians proclaim, this one is the Son of God. They could not understand how it was possible that one who claimed to be the Son of God might suffer on a cross. It did not fit within their worldview. In our culture, we struggle for a host of reasons as well. Different reasons altogether. We live in a culture that has embraced philosophy called naturalism, where we think the whole All that exists is what I can see and what I can touch and what I can feel and what I can hear, what I can sense. And we never stopped to think for a moment that there was a time when we could not perceive atoms because our technology was not sophisticated enough, but they were really there. And perhaps there are things that we still cannot see, that we cannot understand, but God is able to reveal to us. But in our naturalistic world, we say that all that exists is what we see. You're not body and soul, the culture would say. You're just a brain with neurons and electrons firing down those neurons, and that's it. That's the naturalistic worldview. And it has no room for one who claims to be the eternal Son of God. And so as we go out on the street, the average person we meet is going to think this way. There's no way that this can be so. And they'll say, he was just a wise man with some good teaching. Reject his mighty deeds and reject his claims about himself. Or our world, our culture is faced with what's called pluralism. We live in a diverse society, a society where everybody has their own philosophy, their own views on the way things are. And our society wants to say they're all good, they're all okay. It's just so long as you don't say that your way is the only way. And so it's fine if you want to embrace Jesus, but the moment you hear him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. We say, no, that can't be right. How can that be when there are so many people who don't come this way? We don't want to believe. Our culture does not want to believe. We've grown up in that culture. We live as people who regularly say things like, what's true for you is true for you, and you do you as if truth can be purely relative. And in this world view, we don't have room for the cross. Because what does the cross teach us? That we are so sinful, that we are so rebellious, that we are so separated from Almighty God, that the only way in which we could be reconciled to Him is for God Himself to take on flesh and go to a cross and die for us in our place to atone for our sins. That's what perfect justice demanded. Our culture doesn't want to believe that, that justice is necessary. But even deep within, I think that your heart cries out for this. You recognize that there is justice in this. We see in our culture every day, we read in the media reports, how prosecutors and judges let criminals go free who have committed heinous and obvious crimes. 
And yet they don't prosecute them or they release them without judgment. And they go on to do the thing they've always done and our hearts cry out and say, where is the justice in that? We were made by God. We have all thumbed our noses at Him. We've all shaken our fists at Him. At a good God who loves us so much that He made a good world for us. And that though we sin and rebel against Him, He does not wipe us out in a minute, but He has sent His Christ for whom it was necessary that He should suffer and die and rise so that we might be redeemed. Our world doesn't love this, but we must be a people who love this message, knowing that God is just to destroy us. And yet, in His infinite mercy and grace, He has not done this, but He has sent His Son to redeem us. This is the message at the heart of the Christian faith. The message of one sent by God, who is His Christ, who went to the cross because it was necessary to fulfill all Scripture so that He might atone for our sins, who was buried and on the third day was raised. And the proof that Luke gives us, the proof that Jesus gave us, is not that this is what Scripture says, First and foremost, the proof is that Jesus went as it was written of him. All the prophets spoke of his coming, and many of them spoke of his resurrection. Even if it was in a veiled sense, he was the only one who understood it. He was the only one who synthesized it, who rightly comprehended it. And he taught us and said in the clearest terms, I must go as it is written of me. I must suffer and die and rise. And how do you know it's true? Because he did it. Because if it was false, he would not have risen. How do we know that he rose? Because a multitude of witnesses, people who saw the risen Christ, not just Matthew, not just Mark, not just Peter, not just Luke, not just the twelve, five hundred or more men and women, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, saw the risen Christ and they bore witness. So we receive that testimony and we believe it. We believe it because the Spirit bears witness in our hearts as well. We do not disbelieve just because our culture says resurrections don't happen. For we believe in a God who spoke light into existence, who gives life because he has life in himself. Is it so hard to believe that he can raise the dead? He raised his son Jesus Christ. He will surely raise all who believe in him at his coming. And so Jesus, under his tutelage, teaches us that to confess him as the Christ of God means that we confess his cross, we confess his resurrection. And as he will show us in closing, we recognize that he will surely return. Look down at the the page in verse 26. Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus looked forward to a day when he, as the Son of Man, of whom Daniel spoke, would come in glory. He has unfolded his suffering to his disciples. He has spoken of the necessity of his cross. Now he speaks of his glory and his coming in glory. 
That day too will come. And if today we are ashamed because our culture says things like resurrections don't happen and crosses, crucified messiahs aren't necessary. If we're ashamed of his words, he will be ashamed of us at his coming. And this is the basis for the calculation that he will teach us as he teaches us to think in a new way in light of his first coming and in light of his second coming. He teaches us to reason rightly. The math is not complicated. It's actually quite simple. Look up then at verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus says to his would-be disciples, you want to follow me? It's true my path leads to a crown. It's true my path leads to a throne, but it leads through a cross for me, and it leads through that kind of thing for you. Not that you must go to the same sort of cross, but every day you must take up your cross, giving of yourself for the cause of Christ. That's what it means to follow his example. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he says to them, I die every day because he was persecuted and he was stoned all for the sake of the gospel. Not as some great sacrifice in himself, but because he believed that this is true and this anchors reality that there is a day coming when the Son of Man will come in glory. He did not want to be ashamed of him. He did not want him to be ashamed at his coming of Paul. And we should not want that for ourselves either. And so we willingly follow as he would lead us, taking up our cross, That is, a willingness to sacrifice, to give of ourselves, even unto death, denying ourselves and our interest, looking out for the interests of others. And here's the calculation, simple as it is. It begins with a paradox. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You say, how can that be? You save your life and you lose it. You lose your life. And thereby you save it. Here's the reason. For what does it profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In other words, the world is not greater than your soul. It's that simple. The math is not complex. A child can do it. We make that calculation. Here's the value proposition that explains the paradox. If we lose our lives, we save it because we're following Christ as he would lead us. And we recognize that our souls are worth more than all this world because there is a day when the Son of Man will come. That Son of Man who came and suffered, for whom it was necessary that he suffered, there is a day when he will come in glory with the angels of heaven. This is the sum of our faith. We believe In the one who is the Christ of God, who came, who lived, who suffered, who died for our sakes, who was buried and who was raised, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, and who will come again. This is the foundational belief that makes us Christians. It's not enough to simply know it in our heads. We must know it in our hearts in such a way that it issues forth in that true obedience that causes us to follow him as disciples wherever he will lead. So today, if you hear this message, believe, 
Believe and confess indeed that Jesus is the Christ of God and resolve to follow him wherever he leads. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that you would cause your son to be our tutor. That through your word, which we've heard this morning, that you would produce faith in our hearts. This is the greatest of miracles, that you should give new life to people who are walking dead men and women. So we pray, O Lord, for any here who are not yet in you, that you would produce that life. And we give thanks for those who, in coming to faith, have received that new life and will declare it through baptism. And we thank you, O Lord, that you have promised and you are good for your promises to cause us to endure, to hold us fast all our days. May we endure faithfully in this hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.